Father, uh, come before you now uh, by your grace and for your glory. And we're so grateful, Lord, that uh, you've given us a hope that transcends the awful and ugly realities that surround us every day. Um, we understand how terrible uh, it is what happened in Florida. Uh, but we know that those kinds of things are happening around the world almost on a daily basis. A lot of these things go unreported just simply because it's not in America. But, well, we just it's just a testament to the fact that this is not our home, that we are seeking for a country of our own. We are seeking for the city of God. And we are looking forward to the new Jerusalem and new heavens and new earth, Father. Like Peter says, that's what we're looking for. And so, Lord, uh, fill us with hope today, we pray. And we pray for all families that are affected by the devastating things that have taken place. We pay, pray above everything that just as with any trial, um, that, that, that men and women would, would perceive that for what it is, that it is a siren call from, the, from you, the creator of all things, uh, to your creatures to get right with God. And so I pray that you would save through the midst of all of this destruction and all of this uh, chaos, that you would bring beauty and, and salvation to the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I told you Isaiah 45, it's actually 46, sorry about that. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, and the reason why I want to go there, I'm going to make an appeal to this verse here in Isaiah, and then I want to make another appeal to an extra-biblical text um, out, of the, uh, uh, out of the Gospel of Barnabas, which is obviously a pseudo-Christian text. It's not an inspired text whatsoever, but there's an, there's an interesting historical detail there. But look at what this, uh, what this verse says here, Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. Okay, Beginning in verse 9. It says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And this is the phrase I really want to focus on. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, the things which have have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, and surely I will do it. Now, the reason why I take you to this passage as we prepare to talk about protology, let me just get rid of this, um, is because of what the text says. Like, notice what Isaiah says here. Declaring the end from the beginning, um, if you wanted to really uh, span um, the, the, the historical landscape, so to speak, if you wanted to go from beginning to end, you may say it in a different way. You might have said declaring uh, the beginning to the end, right? Doesn't that sound more chronological? Um, but interesting that in the Hebrew, it's exactly like this. It's actually, the fact is, is that there's a declaration in the end about the beginning, or in the beginning about the end, rather, right? And so this is where um, the, the Gospel of Barnabas comes in and kind of uh, commenting on this, um, what they say, what, what the Gospel of Barnabas contains is a small phrase uh, that says that God is going to make the end like the beginning. Uh, so just early sources of Jewish interpretation, for example, um, uh, all of them, the uh, you know rabbinical tradition and whatnot, uh, saw it in the same way uh, that what was being declared here and in other places is that God, in fact, is going to make the end like the beginning. 
which is really amazing. So that what is happening, of course, is that God is taking uh, creation back to uh, an original Edenic state. And uh, that's what we're going to see. And then, you know, obviously even beyond that, uh, he's going to go beyond that. Um, very quickly, let me just kind of lay out what we're doing in protology, okay? Um, protology is really, remember, we talked about protology consisting of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Now, there are some theologians that will extend that all the way to chapter 11, okay, uh, going all the way just prior to the patriarchal history with Abraham uh, uh, and going all the way to the division of the nations and all of that. But, but really, mainly theologians focus on the first three chapters of Genesis as that which consists of protology. What is protology? Well, protology is the study, right, of what? First things. That's right. What is the, what is the opposite of protology? Eschatology, which is? Study of last. Oh, you guys are. Jonathan, get back up here. <laughs> All together now. You guys are doing great. That's right. And so this is what we're looking at. We're looking at the study of first things. But what we're going to find is that, <clears throat> that the study of first things is actually eschatological in nature. And that, that's something that really um, kind of grabbed a hold of me when I was first studying protology, is that, in fact, protology is eschatology. Let me read you um, just a couple quotes here, one, a couple from G.K. Beale. This is what G.K. Beale says in his biblical theology. He says, Protology presupposes in eschatology that a beginning implies an end. Uh, and that is what the original creation is giving us. It's giving us a starting point, and if there's a starting point, there's going to be an ending point. But it's, it's, it's more elaborate than that, much more elaborate than that. Uh, G.K. Beale goes on. Now listen carefully and ask any questions that you might have. You can't interrupt me because this is Sunday school. This is not a sermon. So you guys, you're not going to interrupt my flow. You guys ask any questions uh, that you want, okay? Eschatology is protology. Anybody find that a little bit provocative? G.K. Beale says eschatology is protology. What do you think he means by that? That we find the last things in the first things. That we find clues to the end and the beginning. That's right. And that it's pointing to. That's right. And you find the beginning in the end, right? So what's happening is this. Is now I developed this. I'm going out on a limb. It is being recorded, so you got me on record. <laughs> I, I think what's happening in Scripture is that God is giving us a set of bookends in the Bible, chapters 1 through 3, which this consists of protology, right? And then Revelation 21 through 22 is giving us the eschaton, right? Uh, the eschaton, that's right, the eschatology, right? And so what happens is that, in, in essence, this set of scripture is put in parallel to this set of scripture. So that what's happening it really is that in the Bible, there is what we could call hermeneutical arc in Scripture that binds the book of God together. That really what we're seeing in the opening chapters of Genesis 
is analogous to and redemptive historical of the last two chapters of the Bible. And, and this is what fascinates me, that we have to then ask the question, how many of you believe in the sovereignty of God? Anyone? Anyone? I do. And so I'm led to believe, because I understand that God is a sovereign God, and that God decrees, according to the Westminster Confession, God decrees whatever so comes to pass. So what I'm saying is that when God gave protology, in the giving of protology, God knew, God had his little secret, it was the divine conspiracy, that as he unfolded the first few chapters of Genesis, he was actually giving us a preview to the last chapters of the Bible. Um, and that's kind of what I have to argue for. I, have to conv- I can say that, but then I have to try to convince you of these kinds of things. So, so how are we going to approach uh, protology in, 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 in Genesis? How are we, how we going to do this? Well, um, it can be outlined like this. Creation... Right, fall, and uh, creation fall. What's the other one I was going to put? Oh, creation fall and promise, because we're just looking at protology. We're not looking at uh, all the Bible where theologians would say, well, what we're doing in all of redemptive history is creation, fall, and then redemption, right? That's really more of looking at the whole Bible. But just in protology, we're looking at creation, fall, and promise. Now, simple enough, right? We get, for example, creation, which are the days of creation. And that's where we're going to begin, is the days of creation. Let me just, <clears throat> let me just argue that the days of creation um, are theological in nature. I don't know for how long, but I think for a long time in my Christian life, I used to go to the days of creation primarily um, because I knew evolution was wrong. And so I'd go to creation, and I'd go to try to establish how creation refutes evolution. But let me, let me make this statement, that, that the days of creation are written not with Darwin in mind. They're written with Christ in mind. And what we're seeing in the days of creation have everything to do with the work of Christ and the work of redemption and all of that. Um, and that's the way uh, that the authors of Scripture take the days of creation. They don't, they don't use the days of creation to refute evolution when you would say, well, that's anachronistic because evolution hadn't existed yet. Okay, fair enough. But we do have how did the authors of the Bible use the language of the days of creation. And what we find is that the way that they use it is they use it in a redemptive historical fashion. They use it in a way that says, look, the God who created all things is the God that now redeems his people. And those kinds of connections are made over and over and over again. So let me begin with day one. Okay. And we're not going to we're not going to finish day one. Day one, if so, let's go to Genesis chapter one. If we go to Genesis chapter one and if we wanted to, because remember, I don't know if you remember this, but. What I mentioned in biblical theology is that, if you would, the final component of biblical theology is that there has to be a Christological connection. We have to make the Christological connection from the text. That is to say, we take a passage from the Old Testament, we understand its redemptive historical development, we try to detect its typological qualities, meaning what type of typology is embedded in this passage, what kind of prophecies or promises or um, 
pictures or illusions or types or shadows, whatever. What, what is in that text? And then how does that connect to Christ, right? So Christ is really the end game for, to me, for all of Scripture. There has to be a Christological connection so that if I were to look at day one, what I, the way that I would, let's say I was teaching a series of sermons from Genesis, right? What I would say is that I would give it a Christological outline so that what we're getting in Genesis day one is Christ as creator, Christ as word, and Christ as, um, what was the last one? Oh, Christ as king. Christ as king. Now, I think we understand um, the first two rather rapidly, and I think for you guys, your mind's thinking of, okay, well, Christ as creator, well, of course, right? So what passages come to mind when you think of Christ as creator? Colossians chapter 1. Let me read some of those, because I know you're going to be throwing those out there. So let me just kind of read um, some of the, the main passages, right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created. That's Christ. But we know in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we have the historical account of creation, but that now takes on a theological significance that is ultimately tethered to Christ. Christ created all things. Um, both in the heavens and on the earth. What does that remind you of? That's Genesis language, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And it says, whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. For him means for his glory, for his pleasure. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, these kinds of passages, right, that, that, that stress that Jesus is the creator. Obviously, John 1 is another crucial example of, and as a matter of fact, is a parallel uh, to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And so now we have, not only as Christ as creator, but now we have Christ as word, right? That prior to the incarnation, Jesus in his pre-existent form was actually... The word of God. He was the divine logos, as John teaches in John 1, 1 and in other places. He was God's word. He was God's wisdom. He was the mind of God. He was the reason, the logic of God. Different ways that you can phrase that. And the way that John phrases it in John 1, 1 through 4, and all the way to 14, of course, is that, um, is that the, the concept of the logos has two primary backgrounds. There is a Greek background to the Lagos idea, and there is a Jewish background to the Lagos idea. For the Greeks, the, the idea of Lagos, it was kind of an abstract philosophical notion of that, that, that it was sort of that unknown reason or unknowable reason that sort of kind of governed the universe, governed everything. It was that which man had no ultimate access to whatsoever. But under the Jewish concept of the Logos, the word of God is the creative power of God, the God's power to create. And it's also connected to the wisdom of God. So anytime the Jew, the, the Jew was thinking about the word of Yahweh, he was speaking about God's power to speak and create with his word. 
He was speaking of God's wisdom in the context of his word. And so you find, you find things in Proverbs, for example, that speak about the wisdom of God personified. And so now we see that the wisdom of God, the word of God, is personified. But it's not just personified, it's actually incarnate, right? That the wisdom of God becomes incarnate in Christ. And I think that for most of us, that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, I want to get to this issue of Christ as king out of Genesis. Because where do we see, well, number one, where do we get the idea of king or kingdom in Genesis? In Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 3. And I, I bet you that you guys know this already. So any, any idea, let me ask you guys, as we think about protology, any concepts for you that come to mind that indicate that Genesis 1 through 3 is giving, giving us kingdom theology? Robert? When he tells them to rule over the earth. When he tells them to rule, to have dominion, right? That's right. That's absolutely part of it. And, and we'll come to know, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that particular issue because we're just going to stay in Genesis 1, but, um, but that's absolutely right. As a matter of fact, the same exact Hebrew words that are used for rule and have dominion and all these things are the same words that are used in the Kings, the Chronicles, and, and Samuel to speak about the kings of Israel ruling and having dominion in their kingdom. Uh, and again, what I'm arguing is that's not by accident, right? So that what Adam becomes, in a sense, Adam becomes a sort of vice regent to God, ruling on his behalf as his representative, male and female. They become, if you would, a kingdom, right? And uh, uh, we'll get that. I won't steal my own thunder here for a second. But um, so let me just kind of give us very quickly. Very quickly here, just in terms of uh, this idea of kingdom, uh, oops. the idea of kingdom in Genesis, um, one theologian by the, by the name of Meredith Klein actually called Genesis, the protology of Genesis, he actually calls it the kingdom prologue. You know what a prologue is, right? An introduction. So what he's saying is that Genesis 1 through 3 and really the opening scenes of Genesis is God giving us sort of the introduction to his kingdom, (laughs) okay, that kind of thing. So there's three things, okay, God's people, God's place, God's rule, that's what we get, that's what we can say. So it's God's people, right, in his kingdom, it's God's, uh, uh, what did I say? Place. (laughs) You guys have better memory than I do. (laughs) And God's rule. Who are his people? Genesis, protology. Who are his people? Adam and Eve. Where's God's place? And where is his word? Well, his word is in his word to create, right? Create and his word to... uh, Let me try to spell that right. Commission. God gives a commission as part of the creation. I mean, just look with me to Genesis chapter 1 in verse, well, in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, 
is a command now. This is his this is his sovereign rule here, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. Again, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the living things that move on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant and yielding seed. So what's going on there is that God is setting the conditions of his kingdom. Do you understand? Okay, so the language of being fruitful and multiply, you know that there are family organizations uh, like the Family Integrated Movement, for example. They've built an entire empire uh, around the words be fruitful and multiply, <laughs> right? And what they've, what they've concluded is like full quiver movements and things like that. Um, but really, when you look at the theology of the Bible, the idea of be fruitful and multiply is actually picked up by the prophets, and it's not used primarily of a person having posterity or children. It's actually used. Uh, it's actually used spiritually, of God spiritually multiplying the people of Israel. And I would argue, and many have too, that the Book of Acts picks up the language of the prophets to speak of the church fulfilling what Israel was commissioned to do, namely be fruitful and multiply, so that what you find in the book of Acts is the same Greek words that you find in the Septuagint when the Bible in the book of Acts says that the disciples multiplied. This, this, this has greater significance than just having a large family. Does it have implications for that? Sure. But I'm just trying to show you the redemptive historical ideas that are embedded in Genesis. Um, any questions, comments, statements? Yes, sir? Like, would it be right to say or that the creation is a foreshadow of the rule of Christ in the heavenlies? Yes. Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, as a matter of fact, let me try to do this so that you kind of can see it on a, on a larger scale, okay? Um, all along, you have two... Um, you have two principles going on here, in a sense. In a sense, you, you can say that down here, and we've talked about this before with typology, right? Down here, you have what is earthly, right? And here, what corresponds to heaven. And at all times, God is sort of, he's sort of uh, typifying what's going on in, in the heavenly realms down here. And so he does this initially in a very primitive way in Genesis by giving us God's people in God's place with God's rule, right? But then guess what happens as you go through historically and then you come to the, you come to the theocracy of Israel, um, then what happens is that you have an escalation where, let's say this right here stands for Exodus. And Exodus is where the theocracy is begun, right? Why does God put Israel in a theocracy? He puts Israel in a theocracy so that they can, watch this, this is an escalation, it's getting closer to the ideal, right? So that Israel actually, to a higher degree, to a more intent, in a more intense way, in a more precise way, gets closer to the ideal heavenly state. What God is actually formally 
organizing his people into a kingdom, right? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Just quickly, I just thought of this, and I, I thought this would be a good, uh, maybe maybe not a, a, a proof of it all, <laughs> but I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's going to take you a long time to understand what was the purpose of God gathering a theocracy, gathering his people formally in a nation state like the theocracy of Israel. Somebody want to read for us uh, uh, Exodus 19, verse 6? Are you there, Landon? Mm -hmm. Read that for us. It says, uh, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Yeah, so what's the purpose that God gathers Israel for in the context of a theocracy? The purpose is primarily religious. It's not just that God wants to have a competing city. It's not just that God wants to have his own government. Right? Because... The, the concept of a kingdom of kings makes a lot of sense. But that's not what he said the purpose is. He said the purpose was to gather them as a kingdom of what? Priests. priests. <laughs> what do priests have to do with governing a nation? <laughs> you see? Doesn't it sound kind of odd? Who leads your country? Oh, the priests. What? <laughs> right? Priests don't lead a country, a nation, a government. See, so theologians have pointed out that what this verse and what, what the theocracy of Israel really does is it shows us that the highest priority of God is not simply to organize Israel into a theocracy so that they can be you know, governed by rules and laws. God's heart, his primary focus, is that we would, we would have an escalation of religious life uh, as the people of God. Now, does that verse there in Exodus 19, does that remind you of anything else? So you have Exodus 19, verse 6, on the earthly plane. But does this idea, does this correspond to anything else? What Peter mentioned? What does Peter mention? That we've been essentially called to be a holy nation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. For God's own possession, okay. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Revelation five nine through ten. I think that's Revelation five nine through ten. So want to look that up real quick? <laughs> I think it's five nine through ten. <clears throat> you got it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Landon. We'll stick. Landon did good. We'll stick with him. <laughs> and they sang a new song. Worthy art thou, my have my. It's in the NASB, but it has a Elizabethan kind of language to it. Worthy art thou to take to take the book. It's right, right? Okay. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and thou, and thou didst purchase for God thy blo- with thy blood from every tribe, uh, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, mm-hmm. and they will reign upon the earth. The Exodus event was just a foreshadowing of the heavenly ideal. So it was. Um, I, I don't want to harp on this, and don't 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 hold me to this, okay? <laughs> but the, the 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 recent the recent sort of resurgence in theonomy theology, which is spearheaded mainly by Bonson, 
is wrong, in my opinion, because it fails to understand the redemptive historical purpose of the theocracy. The redemptive historical purpose of the theocracy is not to become a paradigm for a future theocracy on this plane. It's typological, the fulfillment of which is going to be found only in the heavenly ideal. Does that make sure? Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Can you say that again? You said that you believe Bonson is wrong, wrong. theonomy because yeah. of the redemptive what what? Yeah, because of the redemptive historical oh. function. Oh, okay of the theocracy of Israel, that, um, that it, it, what it is is that uh, Gerhardus Voss, uh, in his biblical theology, identified the theocracy as an unrepeatable event in the history of redemption because it served this purpose. It didn't serve the purpose of becoming a, a cookie-cutter pattern for a future theocracy at a later time in this world. See what I'm saying? Uh, why do you think the church for 2,000 years hasn't been able to do it? Because God is not aiming for that to happen, or else it would have happened. <laughs> right? Uh, and Amelia, when you say theonomy, you mean? Well, theonomy just means that you, we're, we're, we're going back under uh, the mosaic economy of civil law, and uh, um, you know we're going to be governed by the Ten Commandments, Again, you know, things like that, and the Levitical law and everything else. So, 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 you know, there's two arguments there, but I don't want to get bogged down in that. I just raise it for the obvious reason. I mean, we're talking about theocracy and its purpose, right? Is it getting hot in here? Yes. Come on, Pastor Chris. <laughs> save us, brother. Save us. We're just getting started, too. <clears throat> the kingdom of God in Genesis only happens when God begins to take his original creation out of chaos. Do you see that? Turn with me to Isaiah 45. This time I, I mean it. Isaiah 45. <laughs> Isaiah 45, beginning of verse 18. Again, we have an allusion back to Genesis. And it's a very important allusion because... As Graham Goldsworthy has pointed out in his biblical theology, what he says is that in the Bible, we never have a once upon a time in the Bible. <laughs> in other words, right, I mean, you know, children's Bibles, you know, Lord bless them, you know, they're cute and everything. <laughs> but they definitely come across as like storytelling time, right? Where it's like, yes, it is a story. Uh, yes, it is a historical narrative. But as we pointed out, that protology is a lot more than just history. It's a, it's a lot more than just a, a chronological account of what happened. It's also theology. And uh, Isaiah 45, 18 kind of bears that out. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. Now watch this parenthetical statement here. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, watch this, and he did not create it a waste of place, but he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place, 
I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. So, in other words, there's a reason why I believe, even in the Genesis account, you go back to Genesis 1-1, there's a reason why when the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void, you do not have a declaration of goodness until the, the light comes in, right? The light comes in, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, and then God said, let there be light. The light comes in, and then Moses says, and it was good. Israel, under Babylonian captivity, has gone back to a place of desolation, a waste place. And what God is saying to Israel is, this is not what I intended for my kingdom. I did not intend the original creation to be a waste place, and neither do I intend my kingdom to be a waste place today. I am calling Israel to be inhabited. That's just speaking about the land of Israel flourishing. And, and already in Isaiah, for, for example, I think it's Isaiah chapter 40, already you have references to flourishing in the land. And what's going on in Babylon is a contradiction. If you would, it's kind of like a reversal. Israel's going back to that primordial chaos that happened early on in the primal history of the Bible. And that is a type of the, that is a type of the, of the way that God has to overcome the darkness. He has to overcome the chaos by his light in order to establish his earthly kingdom. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John is a genius, is he not? <laughs> I mean, you could say, I mean, is it fair to call yourself a genius when you're under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? That's not fair. <laughs> you're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Come on, you got an advantage. But as a theologian, he was a genius. Let's read it again. Verse 1. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that had come into being. In Him was life. And the life, watch this now, was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not you see the footnote, overcome, overpower, or comprehend. That word can go either way there. Um, and I think it is, I think the phrase to overpower, overcome is better. I think it's closer to, to what I think John is trying to do in taking us back to Genesis, that the darkness of the original uh, creation was a small picture, a primitive picture of how the light had to overcome the darkness to get us into a state of blessedness, of goodness. So too, when Christ comes into the world, he has to overcome the darkness with his light in order to bring his people into a state of goodness and blessedness. I mean, you have little pictures of the creation just like this. Um, again, turn with me now. Um, Turn, me, turn with me to Revelation 21. I take you to Revelation chapter 21. I, just, I want to hit a lot of texts, right? Because I think what's going on here in the Bible is that what Genesis does is it proves to be programmatic. 
In other words, Genesis, the protology of Genesis proves to be a program that God uses and he repeats over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. God has to overcome the chaos. He has to overcome the darkness. Uh, this, by the way, um, the idea of overcoming the chaos and overcoming the darkness, the parallel that we, that we find in, Gen, in John chapter 1. So what has happened there? We've gone from cosmology to what? Cosmology in Genesis... But what are we doing in John? Is Are we still talking about cosmology when it's talking about light and darkness? What is it talking about? Good and evil. Good and evil? And what is that talking about? For example, in Genesis 1, is it good and evil that we're looking at with the darkness and the light? No. Not necessarily, right? And there's nothing inherently evil about the chaos of the primal order, right? It's just, I mean, material, you know... Uh, order has no necessary moral you know quality right it's typological but when you get to john where where have we come to right we go from cosmology to a different sphere right any idea where i'm going with this what's that yeah but i'm talking about what's the what's the undergirding category that we're dealing with now if we're no longer dealing with cosmology what are we looking at Soteriology, thank you. We are now dealing with soteriology in John with these ideas of, 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 of darkness and light. So that what, what happens is that the original creation is a redemptive historical pattern that serves the purpose of soteriology. Um, I, I love it. Let me see. I, I've written so much here. I don't even know what I've written. Would you define soteriology? Soteriology is the study of salvation. So we're now we're, we've gone from cosmology, right, to the to the to the sphere of salvation, right. So we've gone from like the material order to the spiritual realm, right. As we talk about light and darkness and those kinds of things, um, in Isaiah chapter forty, all the way to Isaiah chapter forty-six. Let me develop this. Israel's return from Babylon is described as a new creation. As Israel is taken out of the chaos, as we saw, right? It's not a waste place that God wants. What emerges is a new creation. So, you're Revelation 21? Everybody there? Let's read this fantastic passage of scripture. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, all the way to verse 5, right? This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. There's your protology. The first things. And he, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Why do I take you there? 
I take you there because, again, we have reached, we have reached the final escalation. Revelation 21, 22. The final escalation in, 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 in eschatology. You know, uh, new heavens and the, and the new earth. Revelation 21, after all the debates are over. Right? Jesus has come, you know, the millennial debates are all hashed out. You know, we're all getting along in the new heavens and the new earth. No more crying or weeping. The all mills aren't crying anymore. The free mills aren't crying anymore. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. And, uh, but what happens is, is that we've reached the final goal. But again, every goal, every heavenly reality has a corresponding earthly reality. Remember? So what's the corresponding earthly reality to Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5 that we read? Well, for that, you have to turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah 65. So what is happening, again, in Isaiah 65? happening here in Isaiah 65 is that we have, watch this now, another eschatological heightening, intensification that goes on. Just look at Isaiah 65, verse 17. Everything out of Revelation 25 comes right out of here. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, let's stop there just for a second. No, no, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Right? Right? See, you thought I meant Revelation 2 because it's exactly the same words, right? Oh, so you okay. thought I was reading Revelation 21. See how, I mean... No, 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 no. I know that, but I think... Did you say Revelation 25? Sorry, I'm sorry. No, Isaiah... If I did, strike it from no, the record because that's not what I meant. Okay. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, okay. I create a new heavens and a new earth. So here's a question. When, when Isaiah prophesied this and when the people of Israel received, or, or received this prophecy... What was um, what was God talking about at that point? Anybody know? In other words, if you're a Jew and you heard Isaiah talking about creating a new heavens and a new earth, what is he referring to? Redemption from captivity. Redemption from captivity. Spoken like a true biblical theologian, Jonathan. <laughs> Redemption from captivity. The earthly correspondence to the heavenly ideal. See, see, this is the beauty about biblical theology is that we don't sidestep history. We understand that the promises of a new creation that go all the way back to protology, we understand that they have real historical um, you know, markers, if you would. Real historical fulfillments. But that does not detract at all from the fact that we have an ultimate, final, eschatological, heavenly fulfillment Amen. in the new heavens and the new earth. But here, um, Isaiah is saying, look at, the, I underlined in my, just to show you this, I don't know if y'all can see this, okay, but I, let me, you're probably wondering, how can you even see that? <clears throat> so I underlined in the text of Isaiah, I underlined every phrase that corresponds to Revelation 21. And there are many. New heavens, new earth, the former things. 
He says they will be remembered. Uh, they will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what? Here it is underlined. I create. And then he says, for behold, watch this. I create Jerusalem. That's exactly what, what Revelation 21 said. God is going to recreate Jerusalem, not from Babylonian captivity, brothers and sisters, but he's going to recreate Jerusalem from the cosmic captivity that we have all been in for all this time. And we will finally arrive at the city of God in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be the ultimate deliverance from captivity. Um, Really remarkable stuff the Bible gives us. And it says here... um, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem. There's Jerusalem again. And be glad in my people. Remember he said in Revelation 21, they will be my people. I will be their God. Right? Here again, covenantal invocation. Right? Where does, um, where does this whole concept of I will be, you know, they will be my people. I will be their God. Where does that come from? Where does that language come from originally? Hosea is older than that. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is older than that. It's older than Exodus. <laughs> it's older than Genesis. No, okay, stop the Sunday school class. <laughs> it goes all the way. It goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises to be God's uh, Abraham's God. And later on, he will make those kinds of statements. I will be your God. You will be my people. He makes those statements in Genesis. And it goes all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. That is, brothers and sisters, listen to me. You've heard me say this before. That is the high point of God's, however you want to call it, God's purposes. Uh, Remember the earlier uh, verse that we read out of Isaiah where he says, I will accomplish all my purpose, right? Uh, That is God's ultimate final purpose. And it's wonderful if you let that land on you with, with genuine understanding of what is being communicated there, that what God is saying is that the end game, what is the end game? The end game is that God wants to be with his people in his place under his rule. And in, Gen- in Revelation chapter 21, 22, we find exactly that. We find God's people under God's government, God's kingdom, God's rule, in God's place, where uh, again in Genesis, we, 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 we find that the people of God are in what Revelation calls the paradise of God. That's what, that's what Eden is. Eden is the paradise of God. Now, it's paradise lost. It's paradise that was you know, corrupted by the fall. But um, ever since then, God is seeking to bring us back to recovering paradise now is it just a recovering of paradise are we going are we just trying to get back to eden no 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 we want to go beyond eden what are some differences between eden that's the paradise of god even the prophets call it god's garden the garden of god i think that's in ezekiel ezekiel 36 thank you landon ezekiel 36 refers to eden as the the garden of god that is on a mountain, by the way. We won't get into that. But What's the difference between the original Eden, the original paradise, and the last paradise? Tell me some distinctions. And I'm speaking about Eden pre-redemption. The tree. Which means pre-fall. Distinctions? Oh, 
what about the tree? I, I didn't say you were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's similar. Yeah. Is it is it just similar the tree that what tree first of all there's plenty of trees right? The one that we'll get to eat of the tree of life. Yeah, it won't be a sword or anything. So what's the difference though with the tree of life between the two paradises? We'll have free access to it. Yeah. So the the original paradise you did man never partook of the tree of the of of life. He never partook of the tree of life. Correct. It's not to Revelation, I think it's Revelation 2.7 and then Revelation 22. Um, Revelation 22 that talks about the fact that we will once again have access to the tree of life. And that is uh, in Revelation 22.19. Uh, Revelation, I think it's 2.7 and then right here in 22.19, the, the idea, the concept of the tree of life comes up again. But this time, we have authority. It says, it actually, uh, exousia, we have authority to eat the tree of life. Isn't that remarkable? Because in, at the end of Genesis uh, uh, Genesis 3, when the fall happens, you remember what God did. God made it illegal to eat from the tree of life, right? He put an angel to guard the tree of life, right? So that man could not eat of the tree of life. There was a flaming sword and... You know, that symbolizes is that you will be, you know, you'll be struck down if you attempt to transgress and try to partake of that which you do not, which you do not have the authority to have. But in Christ, in heaven, we will have the authority to do it again, uh, that we will actually finally partake of the tree of life, which is just a sacramental image that the tree of life is a grace-imparting, life-imparting uh, tree uh, it, it just speaks of that we will be able to delight in the fruits of eternal life for eternity. And uh, looking at our crazy world right now, eternity sounds really good. You know what I mean? So we're out of time. Hope you were blessed. God bless you. We'll pick up where we left off next time. And uh, remember, I record all these. So if you missed something that you really wanted me to talk about, you were too embarrassed to ask. Go back to the audio. You can hear it again or something. And also on Red Grace. Let me give a shameless plug for Red Grace. Robert and I were also doing um, on our, pa- our podcast, I'm also kind of reiterating biblical theology. So if you think, you know, maybe you need a little bit more, I talk about it there as well. So let's go to worship.